All right, reminder, it is Mother's Day. So if you need to right now push pause on your TV and get on your phone and order something, then do so. Push pause and wait. It's Mother's Day. So we need to get this right before I even get started. I'll pray. I'll pray for you if you forgot Mother's Day. And I'll pray for the moms that are taking this in online because we appreciate y'all so much. Father, we do thank you for all the mothers that are a part of this body at Radius and some that are taking it in in other parts of the country even that we just appreciate all their work, their sacrifice, um, their willingness to give of themselves and make themselves second for others. We pray that today would be a day of encouragement for them, that you, Holy Spirit, would move on those that know you and uh, give them energy for the coming weeks. And let this day just be an encouragement to them. Jesus, we're always together on Sunday because of you, because of your work on the cross, because of the freedom that we have through your sacrifice. So we're here today to, to call out your name and call you great. We pray that your word would come to life for us even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I couldn't think of a better sermon series title than Resilience when we're talking on Mother's Day. If there's a group of people on the planet that have been consistently resilient, no matter what the odds It's the ladies, it's the mothers in particular, those that are able to bounce back, right? We we used that definition uh, last week and the the longer definition explains it even better, able to withstand or recover quickly from difficult situations. And certainly the moms, young moms, moms that have a lot of experience. We can't say old moms, can we? Moms that are mature moms, all the moms you guys have had to bounce back day after day. I've witnessed this in my home um, thank you for your hard work. It reminds me of a story when one of my children was just a baby and uh, Cheryl was uh, nursing the children. So at, at night, generally she would get up and take care of them when it was time to eat. And one night uh, I could hear the baby crying in the distance at the house and I was laying in the bed. And I, you'll have to forgive me on Mother's Day. Right? I, I'm looking over, wondering my, why my wife, Cheryl, is allowing the baby to cry so I can't sleep, of all things. So I look over at Cheryl, and she has one foot on the ground uh, beside our bed and the other leg still in the bed, and she is just out cold, laid out in the bed from all this work that she's done and giving to this baby. It was one of those nights where I'm like, I, I know I cannot actually feed this child right now because we hadn't made that conversion to the bottle yet, but I better get up and do something because this woman, like, she's resilient. She keeps bouncing back, but at this moment, she's just out cold. It is just true to the nature of a mother to keep getting back up. And uh, man, we appreciate it. The, the single moms that are a part of Radius oftentimes carry weight that um, just goes unnoticed. And, and today, I hope, I hope you get recognized. There's a great mom over at Radius White Knoll named Beverly Richardson. Her baby boy is going to Clemson in, in the fall. He's going into the architecture program. So if you know Carlos Richardson, give him a pat on the back, tell him good job. But I'm telling you, Beverly's worked multiple jobs. She's done all kinds of rigging and whatever she had to do to take care of her sons. And there is... There's no better picture of what resilience looks like than, than those type of moms. So, so thank you for all your work. You are, you are much appreciated. 
And on that line, we, we always have on, on a Mother's Day some pain. There's, uh, there's pain for ladies in our congregation that have not been able to get pregnant. That's something that's weighed on them. And sometimes we've prayed for them and they haven't been able to get pregnant and they've tried a variety of things and their resilience really shows up in, in their willingness to get up again and continue to walk and like move through those really difficult emotions and still bring glory to God even despite the disappointment of not being able to be pregnant. I, I appreciate y'all. I, I know that season, having watched it with some very dear friends, some of them right here at Radius, uh, it, it's, it's pretty amazing to watch y'all walk through those waters. Uh, and I should mention, Every year at this time, Mother's Day, someone's been lost. We have some moms in our body that have lost a child in the last 12 months. And this Mother's Day has a particular level of pain to it. Um, we have folks in here who have lost a mother. Um, that Also on Mother's Day, that this is just a day where they have these great memories of the moms and, and they're trying to conjure those back up, but they can't physically see their mom. And so there's some of them, this is their first, very first Sunday without their mother. So when you're in a big group like we are, all that's going on at the same time. All, all this movement. There's a lot of celebration on Mother's Day, which we're completely comfortable with, and hopefully you're celebrating at your home. And yet there's some pain, and that's part of being in community. So we can give and take as we need and be a really healthy day before the Lord as we think about following him in this gift of motherhood that he trusted many of you with. On a day like today, uh, I want to remember the moms that have a child that's a far away from the Lord. There's a loss there that watching, uh, watching moms walk through that, that difficult road is, is uh, impressive to see them labor in prayer with no results, it seems, at times. To labor and be steadfast in prayer to continue to love, to try to figure out when they're enabling and, and when they're loving and try to figure out all those, those questions. Thank you. Thank you to all the moms out there for your resilient activity for the kingdom of God. When uh, you think about resilience, you think about moms. And then when you think about resilience in the Bible, there's just this stack of stories of individuals throughout history um, that were resilient, that kept getting back up, that they were able to withstand and recover quickly in difficult situations. And really, when you look at the New and the Old Testament, in the Old Testament particularly, you see the resilience of the people of God, as we see out throughout the book of Acts in the New Testament. But the people of God in the Old Testament are the people of Israel. And, and time and time again, we see them screw up, uh, get into trouble, and get back up. And, and God, all throughout history, preserving, in essence, they're resilient, but God in his, in his providence is preserving them as they go through the history pages of the Old Testament. Let me give you a quick review because we're going to jump into the book of Esther, which is the very end of the narrative of the Old Testament. You're like, no, it's not. Malachi is the last book. All right, all right, I hear you. Esther is the last book of history in the Old Testament. So it starts with Genesis, goes to Esther, and then you got the poetry, right? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, that's all poetry. And then you get into the prophets, Isaiah, all the way to Malachi, and the prophets actually slide into the history of the Old Testament. Some of you heard me talk about this before. We, we believe that in Genesis, God created the planet. So there's creation. 
He started the whole thing. We believe that he created at the very end of creation, male and female. We, ladies, just, just to remind you, you were the last ones created, so you must be the most specialist, as, as the little kids used to say. Like, it, it, it's incredibly intricate and precise and beautiful. The very last of creation is the female, the human female. And so when we talk on Mother's Day, you go back to creation. You just can't get away from We believe at the very beginning in Genesis, God created man and woman. And in order to reproduce, he gave uh, the woman this great, not only responsibility, but gift to bear human life. Dude, our world does not seem to, the, the American world seems to almost move to a point where we disdain the responsibility of raising children. Not, not by God's design. So at the very beginning, there's creation. And then there's this fall. And if you know Genesis well, man and woman sin. And there's a curse placed on both of them. And ladies, you know, if you've had a child and you're celebrating Mother's Day, you are not celebrating the delivery because it's painful. It's a painful process. I know uh, my daughter's very pregnant today and she's uncomfortable. And then comes the birth, which is painful. And the recovery, which is painful. Um, so then comes the fall. If you know how the Bible works, creation, fall, and then there's this flood, massive flood uh, in Noah's day. There's this, this place called the Tower of Babel where all mankind is divided up into nations and there's this variety of languages laid out by God. You can read it if you want to in Genesis. And then there's this guy named Abraham. He comes on the scene. God chooses him. He has faith. Both those things happen hand in hand and God makes a covenant with him that God's going to bless his people. He's going to preserve his people. And eventually he's going to save all mankind through Abraham's line. Just quick history lesson. Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. So Abraham, Isaac, and then Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel, where we get the nation Israel, the Israel that you know about today in the Far East. Like that's, that's Israel. It's named after that guy, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob had his name changed to Israel, and then he had a bunch of kids, right? He had 12 sons. That's exponential. Once you get 12 sons and they start having kids and, and they start having kids, it don't take long to have a nation, right? Exponential growth with a big family like that. And over the course of time, this people, the Hebrews, the children of Abraham, become a nation. They become uh, 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 a people. And throughout history, you, you can go through the Old Testament you walk through Joshua and Judges, you can see these people as they move in re from region to region and finally make it to the promised land. And then they have kings. So you can go through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and you can see the stories of all the kings that led the, the uh, Israelite nation. And then it, they had a civil war and a split. There's all, all kind of history in there you can get into. But when you get to the book of Esther, at the very end of the Old Testament history, you actually have all the folks Abraham's children, we call them the, the diaspora, they're, they're spread out all over the place. They've been invaded by other kingdoms. First Nebuchadnezzar came in and, uh, of the Babylonian empire and, and took a bunch of folks away. And th then came the Medo-Persian empire. And so now the Persians are ruling. And that's where we pick up our story. Let me just say this for those of y'all that love one, two, threes and formulas those have great value. I'm not against them. But a lot of the Old Testament, and even the Bible, is just narrative. It's a story being told. And God, in his wisdom, 
uh, lays out these stories for us to hear and respond to. So I'm just going to, as a Mother's Day treat, I'm going to tell you the story of Esther, at least the first two chapters of the book of Esther. And you and I can hear it. And we'll trust that God will teach us something about him as I tell just the simplicity of Esther chapter one and two. So when we pick up, pick up, open up the book, we come on this nation of Persia, this great empire. It would work all the way, if you looked at your map today, from West Pakistan all the way over to Sudan and everything in between. So it's this massive, powerful nation, organized, well-run. It has a powerful king named Xerxes. And we pick up the story with him calling all of his troops to his northern kingdom, Susa, and they are, they're partying now. It's 180 days of partying, but they're also planning. So they got all the military people coming in and out and they're planning and, and there's some partying going on at night. There's all kinds of stuff going on for 180 days as they plan to invade Greece. If you go back through history, there's some amazing and very famous battles as King Xerxes decides to take, his, probably to avenge a loss that his father had and go try to invade the nation of Greece. Uh, there's movies made about it. Perhaps you heard of the, the Battle of Thinopoli in 480 BC. That's the movie 300, right? So, so this is probably the moment where he's preparing for that war. The scripture says this in verse four, it says the celebration lasted 180 days. It was a tremendous display of opulent wealth and of the empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. If you could just think of Prince Philip's funeral and all the beauty and, and maybe North Korea marching all of its warheads through the streets, some combination thereof where they're just celebrating the king's greatness and the, the empire's greatness and preparing perhaps in back rooms to lead his troops into battle, into Greece. I don't know if you uh, know that story well, well. That's where Leonidas comes from. He's the king of Sparta. He has, that's where the 300 stand. And there's, there's a variety of battles there. Just so you know, if you watch the movie, King Xerxes, man, he, he ain't nine feet tall and he doesn't talk like a foghorn, right? That's not accurate. And sure enough, Leonidas did not have abs like he did on the picture for that movie. Like none of that's true, but the battle actually happened. There's actually a few more than 300 there. There ended up being uh, 300 guys from Sparta there, but it's, it's an it's amazing true story. Sometimes when you put it in the movies, it gets added to a little bit, but just to give you a little context with Esther, like that's what's happening right here. They're preparing to go to that battle. They're gonna win that battle <laughs> against the 300, but they're gonna lose the war. And so he's got all of his men together. They're celebrating and, and uh, in a different location, Queen Vashti, his queen, is having a celebration for the ladies. And at the men's party looks one way, as you can imagine. There's lots of Budweiser at the men's party and at Queen Vashti's party. I don't know exactly what they, what kind, what they were drinking, what they had. Maybe it was just tea. I don't know. But there's two different parties going on. And then there's this uh, really interesting interaction that goes down between the king and the queen. Check it out. Verse 10, on the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, note to, to all leaders, he's in high spirits because of the wine. He's not thinking exactly sanely. He told the seven eunuchs who attended him, and I won't name them, to bring Queen Vashti uh, to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. 
So a couple key words in there. He told the eunuchs to go get his wife and told them to bring her. First of all, those are a little questionable for any husband out there right now. You probably want to rethink whether you're personally going to go ask your wife to come somewhere or not, how that's going to go down. But this is certainly his wife, his trophy wife. He wants to show her off. He's clearly not (laughs) about her good. He's about his good and his pride. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come, which is insane for those days. Uh, As I read this text, you have to appreciate this Queen Vashti. We don't know a lot about her. This is just a very brief story about her. Um, It's clear that she's physically beautiful, but she also standing up for herself. We don't know exactly why. What's going on? Some folks propose that she's actually pregnant with a famous king that's about to come, Artaxerxes, and that she doesn't want to be in front of a bunch of people pregnant. Who knows what the reason is? But she was not going to come entertain a bunch of drunken men. And she stood up for herself, and here's the response. The king, this made the king furious, and he burned with anger. Quick note to everybody. <laughs> like, this isn't complicated. Making bold promises in, other, in front of other men, women, uh, particularly when you're intoxicated, often goes wrong. There's lots of country songs about this, right? About what started with too much to drink and where you ended up because of. And that's exactly what's happening in this story. Um, so then they got to respond. The king has painted himself into a corner. He's got to figure out how to overcome this embarrassment from his wife not coming as he's proposed in front of all these men. So he brings together a council, which just makes me laugh. Like, bro, I could have given him counsel, really wise counsel, right here from my simple brain. Tell her you're sorry. Go buy some flowers. Go over to her house personally. Don't send any attendants and tell her you're sorry. Instead, he pulls together a council, a council of guys who probably had plenty to drink, and he asked them what to do. And so we'll read verse 16. Mamukam answered the king and his nobles. Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout the entire empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, this is what wonderful counsel, bad counsel will give to you. The wives and all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the king did and will start treating their husbands the same way. There'll be no end to their contempt and to their anger. Let me just say, the three ladies in the cubicles next to you probably don't have the best counsel for you, right? Like who you're asking advice from is, is a big deal. Finding the right people to surround you that'll tell you the truth, that aren't afraid of you, that have your best interest in mind, that are guided by some stronger values than just than just you being happy, be some good people to be around. Bad counsel by these guys and and the king takes it. So here's what he does. He, He sent letters to all parts of the empire, to each province in its own script and language, proclaiming to every man to be the ruler of his own home and should say whatever he pleases. This is, uh, to me, it's a shocking verse 
because it shows the Persian Empire and its power and its organization and its ability to communicate. These 170 provinces, if I remember, 27 provinces, all these provinces, all these different languages, they're so well organized that they can get a communication out to all the provinces, to, from Sudan all the way over to West Pakistan. They can get all these people communicated. What are they going to communicate? <laughs> they're going to communicate a middle school communication from a middle school ruler. Good reminder for us, right? Like the, our variety of leaders in our country that continue to make the headlines, whether you lean one way politically or the other, this just reminds me of Twitter <laughs> and the things that you can put out on blast and sound like even though we're the greatest nation in the world, sound like a middle school kid even when you're leading. We've had that with multiple stack on top of stack administrations. It just continues, and at times it's embarrassing. Uh, but in our country, we can make jokes about it. We can make fun of the president's end now. We can make fun of the previous president. We can do that. We can even do it on TV. In this country, you make fun of the president. Guess what? You make fun of the king. He hears my podcast. This is probably my last day on the planet. So it's an interesting time where... Uh, the king puts out this decree and while you watch a nation with all this power seem to slide the wrong direction, the whole purpose of the book of Esther seems to be to show you and I that behind the scenes, quietly, God is working out his will for his people. That'll come to light as the story continues to be told. You cannot miss when you pick up the book of Esther and you read this whole chapter, this whole first chapter, you're hearing about this king of Persia and all this odd stuff going down, this queen named Vashti. Why is this important? And nowhere in here is God's name mentioned. As a matter of fact, for the rest of the book, God will not be specifically mentioned at any point. And yet you cannot deny that it's dropped right here at the end of the history books of the Old Testament so that we would be reminded that God's moving. He's always moving in his providence. He's working out his plan for the good of his people, for the preservation of his people. In his grace, he enables them to be resilient. We flip over to chapter two and uh, we're introduced to some new characters. These will be really important going forward. It's funny that they come up out of the king missing Vashti, his former queen. He's, he's banished her. She's, uh, uh, she hasn't been seen. He's gone to battle with Greece. He's probably, he, got, he got beat there eventually. He's come home. He's probably sad, and he's looking for his confidant. She, she was beautiful, but she, they must have also had uh, been a, very emotionally attached. He's looking for his confidant. And, and guess what? The advisor's got to come with an alternate plan quickly because if the king changes his mind and allows Vashti back in, then guess who's going to die in a hurry? Vashti's going to be going after the counselors that counseled him to have her banished. So they come up with this, for lack of a better word, the Persian idol show, right? Like it's, it's a... In essence, a, a, a beauty contest. He begins, these advisors advise him to put together this uh, play that they would run where they would recruit the most beautiful women from all over, from all over the empire. If you've uh, watched our American Idol, 
lately. I mean, you know, it was a monster show and it's still on. It'll probably be on for the rest of my lifetime. It seems like they have new people. It's amazing how many people can really sing. Um, there's just this clamoring of folks that won't be famous, right? They want to be in front of everybody. And, and so they, some of them are just terrible and it's painful to listen to them. These days, the, the judges won't even tell them the truth. It drives me nuts. I can't, I can't, I can't hardly watch it because of that. But there's certainly this this excitement about getting on TV and being in front of everybody. And in this particular case, it's not the public driving it, it's the government driving it. And so Xerxes and his advisors are putting together this, comp, uh, this, this, this contest in essence, probably a lot darker than the Persian idol, but they're putting together this contest, contest both to protect themselves and to please the king. So check it out, verse five. At that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa, whose name was Mordecai. He's going to be a very important figure in our story, son of Jair. And he was of the tribe of Benjamin, was a descendant of Kish and Shimea. And his family uh, had been among those who, with King Jehoiakim of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to, the, uh, to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. So that was, for those of y'all that care, uh, 586 B.C. This man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin. Hadassah was her uh, Hebrew name, who was called Esther. Esther means star. Cheryl always wanted to name, she wanted to name Mariah Esther. And I was like, I'm out. I watched too much Sanford and Son. I can't do the name. It was a beautiful name. It meant star and shining. And Esther met all those qualifications. So Mordecai ends up raising his, his cousin. So he's the older cousin. Esther's parents die. We don't know how. And Mordecai becomes her guardian and raises her, and she's very beautiful. And this contest comes along, quote, and she's recruited to this very dark contest where, man, when you read the text, and I'm going to read it because I'm going to let it speak for itself, uh, you, you just, you cringe as you read it, as this young lady, Esther, who's been loved by her cousin and raised, you know, without parents, she's an orphan, but she's been raised in love is going to be thrown into all this chaos. As, as we unpack the story in a couple of weeks, you just, you're really going to get to feel her resilience as the story unfolds. Here's what's interesting. Esther, verse 10, Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. He's coaching her up, he told her to stay quiet about being Jewish he understands the tide of the times, which you'll see in the coming chapters. And she's just, she's just following instructions in a very, very difficult time. And yet God's working. Let me read you about 10 verses, if you'll hang with me, and we'll see, uh, let's see some of this movement. Before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments, six months with oil of myrrh, followed with six months of special perfumes and ointments. And when it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take from the harem. And that evening she was taken to the king's private rooms and the next morning she was brought to the second harem and the king's where the king's wives lived. There she would be under the care of Shezgaz, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. And she would never go to the king again unless he, he especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. I wrote in my notes, U-G-H, ugh. Like, this thing, this thing's pretty ugly. 
And these young, beautiful women are just being used. They're being used by the king. They're being used by the government to appease the king. It's, it's ugly. There's, there's, there's no way around it. In spite of all that, Esther, among these women, uh, is, is gaining favor. As a matter of fact, when you read these chapter, all the verses, you see that everybody she came in contact after she got brought into this, quote, contest. They had favor. They liked her. They liked who she was. They thought she was beautiful. And, and God, in his providence, is putting her in a very important position for the preservation of his, of his, of his people. Verse 15, Esther was the daughter of Abihail, who was Mordecai's uncle. Mordecai had adopted his younger cousin, Esther. And when it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai, the, the eunuch in charge of the harem. And she asked for nothing except what he suggested. And she was admired by everyone who saw her. And Esther was taken to King Xerxes in the royal palace in early winter in the seventh year of his reign. He's just, man, this is real, real stories. Um, when we talk about some of these conversations that have gone on in our nation in the last 10 years, particularly as the Me Too, which became politicized, but certainly so many women have been taken advantage of by folks who are in authority of them. And this, that's exactly what's going on right here. It's really dangerous to take Esther and compare her to Daniel as Daniel makes his stand on what he's going to eat, if you know that story, and, and how he's, like, like men and women, very different positions in society in those days. So, so I, my advice would be just don't compare them. Let Esther stand on her own two feet in this particular passage. So she's, she's, it says, and the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her. Uh, that he set the royal crown on her head and he declared to the queen instead of Vashti. And to celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. So you got this, it's kind of a Cinderella story without the love, right? It's like this, this amazing story of, of a Jewish girl who's not letting anybody know that she's Jewish. She ascends from just being a simple lady in the community, a, a minority lady in the community, she ascends to being the queen of this great empire. It's, uh, it's, it's shocking, really, as it unpacks. It's got pain and difficulty in it. Who, who can even imagine how she's processing these days as she's taken from her home with Mordecai and put into this process? But in some, man, powerful, resilient way. She uh, holds back her identity as a Jew and she just walks through the process. We don't know exactly her connection to God at, at this point. We, we assume that she has one, that she's been trained by Mordecai and she's, she's depending on God, we, we, but we don't know. All that's assumed. It's not in the story. So when we read these first two chapters, you just cannot get away from the fact that the living God, when he is, when he wants to accomplish something, he accomplishes no matter what happens. You, you can't miss the power of Xerxes in the passage. It's, it's held way up high in the story. And yet this, this lady, she's beautiful. She has no influence. She is rocketed into a position of influence, as you'll see in the coming days, to preserve, to preserve the people of Israel. Because God's silent. Uh, He's certainly moving in stealth 
And for you and me, as we read this story and we listen to it, it's this, this moment when you turn on the news, when you flip on your phone and you go to CNN or Fox News or whatever your news source is. Bro, I, I look at the first five stories and I am depressed. It don't matter what, which one of the servers I'm on. It's just, it's just it feels like this place is coming unglued. It's just a good reminder. Even when everything seems to be tipping to the negative, for, those, for many of us, it's a moment for us to go back and go, wait, wait, wait. God is accomplishing his purposes in his providence. He's moving. The church will be preserved. His will is going to happen. And he said he's coming back and he will. None of this is dissuading him. Even though I can't actually see all the time what he's doing, he's still moving. And he has not lost his influence and power over this place. Sometimes... Uh, folks say the devil is in uh, the the devil is in the details. Not really. Really, God is in the details. It's, it's just a really good good reminder for some of us raising families. Uh, some of us have just started, and you got little ones. And I can remember certain days where it's like felt like we had no clue what we were doing. This thing seemed like it was coming off the grid. This story reminds us, man, man. This yeah, we got responsibility as parents and. Uh, thousands and thousands of hours that Cheryl has invested in our kids. It's played dividends. And you don't want to, on Mother's Day, you want to hold that high. But on the back end, you want to remember the providence of God, that he too, he too is at work in my children's hearts, in the places where they end up. And and there's some rest in that. Otherwise, we feel like we got to track our kids every move. And we're utter failures when we don't cover every base. On a Mother's Day, as we watch God preserve the nation of Israel through this, this wonderful lady, Esther, it's a good day to remember that he, he can handle your family, that, he's, that he can handle your son who's far, far away right now, that he hasn't lost sight of him. It's this great day for us to take that simple word providence and give it as a gift to our mothers. He's, he's not, God's not lost in the complexities of our life. It's just a simple little charge to you. So moms, oftentimes you lead us in prayer because you love so well. And so when uh, kids are in trouble, you guys war for them in prayer. Please keep leading us that way. Please keep leading us um, as prayer warriors. And, and you work. So it's really interesting. Sometimes we say just pray. That, that's appropriate. Like praying is powerful and and we're serious about that here at Radius. But then there's also this work. There's these thousands of hours. As I think of Cheryl with six kids, the thousands and thousands of hours that she's put in them, at least re- rejoice in some of the fruit that came, even if it didn't come out exactly how you thought. Rejoice in getting that opportunity and then what it's produced. And keep, keep working. Be, be resilient in the work, particularly some of y'all with young kids. Man, those first five years are so important. Fight through it to... Uh, Give the goods to your kids. If I could give you one little piece of advice on Mother's Day, do it in community. When you got a question, find a a lady a little further down the road who you respect and and watch how she handles her kids and ask questions. Like this is the time, if it's a guy, you're going to Waffle House. I don't know where y'all go. You can go to a coffee shop, whatever. But some place where you can really get the information from somebody with experience. All that, man, it is... It is the hope of the church that moms would take the good news about Jesus 
and be able to pass it along to their kids. So just so you don't understand, Esther's place in the Old Testament, this very last book, the next thing to be written in the narrative is going to be the birth of Jesus on this planet, right? So you've got this last story in the Old Testament where God's name is not even mentioned, but he's moving. He's preserving the people that will eventually be uh, the nation that produces the Messiah. It's going to produce Jesus. So this is leading us to the ultimate good news as God orchestrates his plan. From the fall to the cross, Esther is like just in this neat spot to remind us God ain't never out of control. His providence is always in play. And so on Sundays where we get together and remember that Jesus died on the cross, we thank him for that whole process from the Old Testament to the new, to the day when he died on the cross. And, and, and we do that by taking bread and juice every Sunday. And we celebrate the fact that we were made righteous by his body broken there. We're going to spend a bunch of time in the book of Esther. We're going to keep talking about her being resilient. You're going to get to meet a few more characters next week. We'll keep telling the story and letting the story work on us. Let's pray together. I remember this story when I was a kid, Lord. Thank you for getting to hear some of the stuff when I was really young and admiring this lady and always being a little interested in just how beautiful was she. Some of those things that are just so common for us as we walk around on this planet, noticing what one another looks like, comparing and contrasting all these things in our minds, Lord, and yet with all that movement, all the movement of governments across the planet, you always, you always are the one who is sovereign over it all. You have the power to move anybody in, anybody out. And we're thankful that, uh, <laughs> that this story represents some of that. We're reminded and we worship you for your great plan to redeem us by sending your son to die on the cross. And so we celebrate that today together, um, even as we celebrate the moms that uh, have given so much to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.